I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we consider our thrilling Candidates and the Constitution series, in which we're comparing the statements and proposals of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump to the text and history of the Constitution. We now turn to the First Amendment to the Constitution, including its free speech, free press, and religion clauses. From debates over free speech on college campuses to the relationship between public officials and the press and beyond, the First Amendment has featured prominently in the campaigns of both major candidates. Joining me to discuss the First Amendment and the 2016 presidential campaign are two of Americans' leading First Amendment experts and constitutional scholars and good friends of the National Constitution Center. Erwin Chemerinsky is the founding dean and distinguished professor of law and Raymond Pryke Professor of First Amendment Law at the University of California Irvine School of Law with a joint appointment in political science. And Brad Smith is the Josiah H. Blackmore II, Shirley M. Nault Professor of Law at Capital University Law School in Columbus, Ohio. Erwin, Brad, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jeff. Delighted to be with you. Wonderful. Let us jump right in. One of the big First Amendment questions of the past couple weeks has been the New York Times' decision to publish copies of Donald Trump's 1995 income tax returns. Uh, Donald Trump's lawyer sent a letter to the Times threatening legal action, stating that an individual taxpayer's income tax returns are confidential and statutorily protected from public disclosure. Uh, but according to experts consulted by the Times, as Adam Liptak reports, the First Amendment poses a very high barrier to any such litigation. Erwin, let's begin with you. If Donald Trump were to sue the New York Times, would the suit succeed? No. There's no plausible suit against the New York Times for publishing this. At this stage, the information that's been published, so there's no possibility of a prior restraint to stop it. It's entirely a question of whether there's a criminal violation or damages suit for public disclosure of private fact. The Trump campaign has not denied the truth of what was published, so there's no claim for defamation. The United States Supreme Court has been clear that there is a First Amendment right to publish and broadcast truthful information, whether obtained legally or even illegally. In fact, in Bartnicki versus Vopper, the Supreme Court said, even when there was an illegal wiretap of a phone and that led to information being played on a radio broadcast, there was no basis for liability because it was a matter of public concern. Trump's tax records, of course, involve a matter of great public concern, more than any other case before the Supreme Court. Um, I would be shocked if there's ever a criminal prosecution or a lawsuit. There's no basis for it. Thanks so much for that. Brad, do you agree or disagree? And also, uh, the Bartnicki opinion that Irwin referred to was six to three. Can you tell us what the dissenters would argue? And is there a case that Bartnicki is wrong and that illegally uh, obtained information should not be able to be published? Well, <clears throat> I think first that I, I would agree with Irwin's uh, assessment. Um, I think one of the things as well that's important is that uh, it's not at all clear that there's any statutory prohibition even at issue here. The statutory provision essentially prohibits IRS officials, government officials, from releasing tax information. So if there were an issue here, that would normally be the place you would expect to see uh, a legal action brought. And, of course, it's very hard to figure out what was the source and, and, and where that came from. 
Um, so I don't think that there's much uh, possibility that we're going to see any real legal action on this, uh, and certainly not any kind of uh, you know, libel or slander claim. As, as Irwin says, there's nothing to suggest that the uh, publication was not true or done with reckless disregard for the truth. Um, and I have to confess, Jeff, I don't really know, quite know what the uh, Barnecki dissenters, dissenters might say. Uh, generally, uh, their view has been that... Uh, that there is a need to simply be uh, more protective of privacy, more protective. It's a view that extends over to some of the other issues we'll talk about, uh, possibly terrorist speech and so on, that these public concerns can uh, can and should play a, a role in determining the, the limits of free speech. Uh, but I just don't think that uh, it's a workable position, ultimately, with this type of leak going to the press, then the press is going to... to what report on it? How, how do you how do you step in and, and try to regulate that? Uh, it's not even a national security case as you might have had with something like the Pentagon Papers years ago and that kind of claim. So I can't see it coming into play on something as uh, I guess as I, I don't mean to downplay it, but as relatively trivial as the release of someone's tax returns. Um, thanks so much for that, uh, Irwin. Well, since Brad mentions it, the, the privacy concerns on the other side of these free speech issues. Why don't I take a beat on the uh, great uh, drama surrounding the release of the video showing Donald Trump making uh, offensive comments about women? Um, are there any legal issues involved? I, I gather from our great constitutional prep that um, a hot mic can be a criminal act in California under state law. NBC could potentially be liable if Trump didn't know whether he was being recorded because the California Penal Code criminalizes any person who without consent records their conversations. But speculate, if you would, Erwin, first about whether there are any legal issues raised by the uh, recording and release of the video and, and then maybe any broader issues involving values of uh, fr free speech and, and privacy. I don't see any legal issues. And in fact, in all of the media attention, I've seen no one suggest any legal issues. The California law that you mentioned is a so-called two-party consent law. It says you can't record a conversation without the consent of both individuals. So if you and I were having a phone conversation and you recorded it and I didn't know it, you'd be violating this law, and it's a criminal statute. On the other hand, the context here is that Donald Trump was there to do an interview. When you go to do an interview with a media station, you have to expect that the mic is going to be on at various times. This isn't the first instance in which there's been a hot mic and somebody's been caught saying something they probably wish wasn't recorded. I've never heard of an instance in which somebody tried to invoke the California statute in that situation. Of course, it's a criminal statute. It would have to be California that would bring a criminal prosecution. My guess is also the statute of limitations has long expired on this, so I don't see a basis for that. Um, more generally, in terms of privacy, I think that the California statute is very important with regard to privacy. But I think when you're dealing with a public figure, as Donald Trump was then, being interviewed by a media program, the claim of privacy seems illusory. It just doesn't exist in this context. Uh, very interesting. Brad, uh, do you agree or disagree? I gather other countries strike a different balance between privacy and free speech, and even public officials are accorded a degree of privacy against electronic recording and disclosure that we don't give them in the U.S. Uh, does the U.S. Uh, fall too hard on the free speech side, and what issues do you think the Trump video 
raises. Sure. Well, <clears throat> well once again, uh, I, I agree with Erwin's uh, legal analysis, and I suspect that, that Erwin and I, in fact, I know that we have very different opinions on a lot of things, but at least today we're showing that there can be a lot of uh, meeting in the middle and, and recognizing uh, the uh, commonality of, of where the law is. And, and I think that's exactly right. You've got a, a media interview, uh, and, and there's not really an expectation of uh, privacy there unless there's perhaps more to the facts that, that we know about where, uh, you know, he was assured this was not being recorded or something like that. But uh, I don't see that there's much grounds for action. I think that the, the big issue here, you know, you mentioned that a lot of European countries provide much greater uh, protection for privacy, including uh, nowadays a controversial sort of right to be forgotten where people can uh, insist that uh, articles about them be taken off the web, things that mention them. Uh, if they if they don't like those particular articles, uh, we don't have that. I think we're better off with our more robust system. Let people talk. Let people say what they want. Don't trust the government with that power. But I do think one of the things we see in this campaign, a lot of the issues that are viewed as sort of you know First Amendment issues, are probably not. Uh, issues that, that raise First Amendment problems under the Constitution, but they do raise questions about our, our basic approach to, to uh, free speech. Um, you know, it, it's, it's one of these things where people have a right to engage in, in speech, but not every time that you have a constitutional right should you use it to the fullest extent of the law in all cases. There are situations where, where judgment is called for. And I think one of the things that you see that, that I think is a source of great frustration in, in a lot of the country is uh, it, it seems like there are always these kinds of leaks being made. And they seem to go you know, to a lot of people one way, right? We, we see that information is leaked about Donald Trump's tax returns. We see that information was leaked about uh, donors to the National Organization for Marriage. Uh, we see that... Uh, Oh, I can't remember some of the other examples we've had in, in, in recent years, but there have been a number of cases where it seems that a lot of people have decided, right, that they're going to uh, put these things out there, sometimes apparently in violation of the law, as with somebody leaked those tax returns, right? And if the New York Times can publish them, it doesn't mean somebody did not leak them illegally, and, and almost initially it has to come from someone in the government, or at least certainly likely that it did. It might have come from an accountant or something like that. But there's there's this belief that people see that standards of decency are being broken down. And, you know, in my mind, one of the reasons you have a First Amendment, one of the reasons it's so robust is we protect things that are not desirable because, again, we don't trust the government with the power to start regulating speech. We're afraid that it will regulate things that, that are desirable, that shouldn't be regulated. But when there is a, a sort of regular... Uh, I hate to use the term abuse, but we might say pushing the limits, doing things that don't probably need to be done or are unethical, and then and then using the First Amendment uh, as a shield, that starts to create an erosion of support for free speech and support for the First Amendment. And I think that's a, a very bad development. So, you know, to me, much of the many of the First Amendment issues in this campaign really come down to, to talking with people about the idea of self-restraint and also at some level talking about the idea of, of appreciating speech with which one uh, disagrees and not immediately always trying to move to silence. It works on both sides of this, that, that people need to, to view this perhaps less as legal constitutional issues and more as issues about uh, doing what's right and, and showing some forbearance when we don't like what someone else has said or done. 
Thanks so much for that. Uh, Erwin, well, do you agree, first of all, that this has been a sort of one-sided series of disclosures? Th this week, uh, uh, as many as uh, more than a 1,000 emails from uh, a hack of John Podesta's account were released by the site WikiLeaks uh, about Hillary Clinton. And more broadly, how do you respond to Brad's suggestion that uh, their privacy interests being violated on both sides by these disclosures, and they raise uh, moral, if not legal, issues that both liberals and conservatives should be concerned about? First, I don't agree that the leaks have been more to the detriment of the Republicans than the Democrats. At the time of the Democratic Convention, there were all of the leaks of the DNC emails. As you've just mentioned, there were all the leaks of the Podesta emails. Obviously, this is very troubling. Somebody's been hacking illegally into the Democratic computers and then releasing the information. Likewise, there's been revelations from internal information with regard to the Trump campaign and Republicans. And so my concern here is the problem of hacking and the need to ensure the security of computers and communications that exist. But I don't think there's been more one-sided or one side been more subjected to this than the other. Second, of course I agree that there's a difference between what someone legally has the right to say and what someone should say. All of us are taught from a young age of the things that are inappropriate to say, and on a daily basis, I hope, we observe those conventions of decency. I don't share Brad's concern that the First Amendment is being undermined or public support for free speech is being undermined by all of this. The reality is people always will allow the speech that they like they always want to stop the speech that they don't like. And therefore, when they see speech that they don't like, that immediately causes them to rail against it and perhaps even want legal actions to be taken. This isn't new in this campaign here. It's not limited to campaigns. It's always the case that we need free speech protection for the speech we don't like because people are always allowed to go on the speech that they like. Okay, well, thank you for that. And the most specific policy proposal uh, on this subject has been Donald Trump's suggestion that one of the things I'm going to do if I win, and I hope we're due, we're, we're certainly leading to it, is I'm going to open up our libel laws. So when they write purposely negative and horrible and false articles, we can sue them and win lots of money. Um, Brad, how could a president open up the libel laws? Would he need Congress's help? Uh, what are the First Amendment constraints on doing so? Well, this is one of those things that, that uh, doesn't concern me in terms of uh, something that, that is actually going to be done. That is, the president has very little say uh, over libel laws. Most libel law is a, a function of the uh, common law, uh, and uh, the, uh, to the extent it's, it, it's not, uh, it has to be enacted by legislatures. And you notice this is something that, that no other Republican, to my knowledge, has, has picked up. You know, you're not hearing any Republicans campaigning on this uh, at, at a lower level. People are not threatening uh, journalists in this way. The definitive case here, of course, is the classic uh, New York Times versus Sullivan. And, and I, I just see no chance that the Supreme Court, even a Supreme Court that would have a couple of Trump appointees on it, is going to uh, overturn New York Times versus Sullivan. And even if it were to do that, uh, it, it's not as if that would uh, that would simply uh, loosen the libel laws as regard public figures, but it wouldn't change the fact that truth would still be a defense, uh, that one would still have to 
to to show that the you know there were damages and, and so on. And I think that will always be very difficult for for public figures to do. So this is one I, I personally don't think it it reflects well on the candidates when their when their immediate reaction to criticism is to say that they want to uh, limit that criticism. You know, I think the same when when Hillary Clinton talks about. Citizens United and immediately says, boy, I don't really like that speech. Well, yeah, it was a documentary criticizing her. and But, you know, the idea, uh, especially on the libel side, that we're going to see a major change in the law just strikes me as fanciful. I don't, I don't see it happening. I don't know if Irwin would, would agree with that, but I, that would be my question. I mean, do we really think there's a likelihood that New York Times v. Sullivan would be reversed? I don't think so. Thanks for that, uh, Irwin. Do you agree with Brad that there's not much of a chance that Times versus Sullivan would be reversed? And also, just in the educational spirit of We the People, remind our listeners what New York Times versus Sullivan said and to what degree it's rooted in the Constitution. Of course. New York Times versus Sullivan was a 1964 Supreme Court case that said that state libel laws have to be consistent with the First Amendment. Specifically, there, the Supreme Court said that a public official can sue successfully for defamation only if he or she can prove with clear and convincing evidence that the statement was false and it was uttered with, quote, actual malice, which means that the speaker knew the statement to be false or acted with reckless disregard of the truth. The Supreme Court said that it's essential that the breathing space, in order for the First Amendment to survive, and certainly in order for it to thrive, the Supreme Court said that there has to be open and robust debate about those who hold and run for public office. Thus, the court intentionally made it very difficult for those who are public officials, and later the court said public figures, to succeed in suing for defamation. The late law professor Harry Calvin from the University of Chicago described New York Times versus Sullivan as, quote, an occasion for dancing in the streets because it's so important in order for democracy to work that there be open and robust debate those who run for public office. I think that Donald Trump's statement about libel law just shows his lack of knowledge about the law for just the reasons that Brad said. First, as Brad said, libel law is state law, not federal law. I can't imagine that Congress would try to pass a law to federalize it. But even if states try to change the law they want, or even if Congress tried to do something, Donald Trump has suggested, would clearly violate the First Amendment in New York Times versus Sullivan. I do disagree with Brad's analogizing Trump's statements about libel law to Hillary Clinton's statements about Citizens United. They're quite different. Donald Trump's statements about libel law just show a lack of understanding of the legal system. Hillary Clinton has said she disagrees with the Supreme Court decision and would like to see the Supreme Court overrule it, or even a constitutional amendment to overrule it. There's nothing wrong with a candidate saying that. That shows she does understand the legal system. Well, but but why would that be uh, radically different than, you know, look, Trump speaks in simpler phrases than, than Hillary Clinton does. She's a lawyer. She's a Yale-educated lawyer, and he's not. If he just says, he's a saying essentially, I disagree with New York Times versus Sullivan. I think it should be overruled. I'm going to appoint justices who will overrule it. I, I think that's essentially what he's saying. I don't see that as a, as a marked difference. And we can't ignore the fact on that that Hillary Clinton often says, she has repeatedly said on the campaign trail, she says, I'm familiar with Citizens United because that was a movie that attacked me. We're going to reverse that decision. You know, she makes it very personal. 
so in that respect, uh, I think she, just like Trump, is upset by the personal nature of the attack. At least that's part of the justification she offers for making that claim, that, she, that it should be reversed. Well, let's jump into uh, Citizens United. And, Erwin, uh, what do you make of, uh, first of all, Secretary Clinton's vow to nominate justices who would be willing to overturn Citizens United? She said uh, she'll call for a constitutional amendment as well to overturn Citizens United in her first 30 days as president. She's also pledged to promote Securities and Exchange Commission rulemaking requiring publicly traded companies to disclose all political spending. Uh, by contrast, uh, Donald Trump has celebrated his self-financing on his own campaign uh, and uh, has said that PACs are a horrible thing. So what would the effect of a Clinton election be, Irwin, on the state of campaign finance jurisprudence? Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission was a Supreme Court decision in January 2010 that held that corporations can spend unlimited amounts of money out of their corporate treasuries to get elected or defeated. The Supreme Court overruled a seven-year-old decision, McConnell versus Federal Election Commission, that had upheld the same provisions of the McCain-Feingold Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act. Citizens United was a five-to-four decision. Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion for the court, joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Scalia, Thomas, and Alito. Many have criticized Citizens United since the day that it came down. Many have expressed great concern about the corrosive effects of money in politics and allowing corporations to spend money right from the treasuries rather than needing to create political action committees. So it's not surprising that a Democratic candidate would say, we either need to overrule Citizens United or a constitutional amendment to eliminate or overrule Citizens United, or there should be other actions taken to lessen the effect of Citizens United. To take them in order, I'm not troubled by a candidate saying, I want to appoint Supreme Court justices who have the following view. Republicans have long said they want to appoint Supreme Court justices who will overrule Roe versus Wade. doesn't surprise me to see a Democratic candidate say, I want to appoint justices that would overrule Citizens United. In terms of a constitutional amendment, my view has been it's a waste of time. The Constitution isn't going to be amended to overrule Citizens United. There's not going to be two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-quarters of the states. So I know that there are many progressives who favor amending Citizens United. I think it's not going to happen, and efforts should be directed elsewhere. And that leads me to the final part. I think there are many things that can be done to lessen the effect of Citizens United. One of them is much stronger disclosure provisions. Congress had passed a law after Citizens United called the Disclose Act to require much stronger disclosure, but Senate Republicans filibustered it. I think the Securities and Exchange Commission can adopt much stricter rules to require that there be disclosure of money spent by corporations in election campaigns. So I very much agree with Hillary Clinton's position here. Thanks so much for that. Brad, you've written an op-ed uh, arguing that increasing disclosure requirements for donors can chill political speech and have negative First Amendment impacts, citing the court's opinion in the McIntyre case, which held that anonymity has been a shield from the tyranny of the majority since the beginning of the republic. Why do you think that the kind of increased disclosure requirements that Irwin suggests are problematic? And more broadly, what do you think that the effect of a Clinton presidency on campaign finance law would be? Well, there are so many problems uh, with, the, with things like the Disclose Act. For example, the Disclose Act actually would have outlawed a lot of uh, activity that was legal 
prior to Citizens United. Uh, so, so you can't have a, a Supreme Court decision that says, you know, these, these restrictions are unconstitutional, and then Congress responds with a statute that would use some other theory to make the same activity illegal, and, and indeed even activity that was legal before that. And, you know, one of the things we see, I mean, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this, and the, the SEC thing that Erwin raised is a great one. The SEC has been getting pushed by Democrats to force publicly traded corporations to release more information about their their contributions to trade associations, to think tanks, and to other sorts of nonprofits. We should note, publicly traded corporations already disclose all of their political spending that's directly related to electing candidates, right? That's already all disclosed. So what we're after here, or what the effort is after, is to force them to disclose information about other people that they give things to and that they give money to. And this is very dangerous because we have to start thinking, is there no area of privacy then? As uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes noted long ago, every idea is an incitement to action. And so where are we going to stop the disclosure? Is there no privacy in people's uh, relationships? And this is the question that when I ask people, you know, I say, look, do you think that uh, you should have to disclose your membership in various organizations? They say no. And, of course, the Supreme Court has held that that's the case. They don't have to do that. When I ask people, do you think your work information should be publicly disclosed when you make political donations? They say no. Uh, and we see that uh, over and over. Plus, the information becomes then uh, incredibly misleading. Uh, the effort here is to force uh, disclosure precisely not because the public wants to be informed. The public is pretty well informed. Rather, the effort here is to force disclosure so that we can harass people, so that we can say, you know, we're no longer saying, I, I'm not sure what to make of that speech. I wonder who's behind that. Instead, we're saying, I hate that speech. I want to find out who's behind that so I can silence them. And I want to silence them by causing them harm in some other way, economic harm, threats of physical violence, vandalism to their property, uh, pickets outside their house. And these are the kind of things that while some of this activity may be protected by the First Amendment itself, such, for example, responding, picketing, and so on, um, a lot of these things are very contrary, again, to that spirit of the First Amendment, that idea that you know, the, the answer to, to speech is, is more speech, not to try to cause people harm in some other way until they quit speaking. So I think, you know, what the Democratic Party platform, now to get specifically into it, the Democratic Party platform calls for a, a constitutional amendment that does far more than just repeal Citizens United. It would also repeal uh, the landmark 1976 decision of Buckley v. Vallejo, which holds that citizens have a right to spend money on, on elections. And remember, the law that was struck down in Buckley v. Vallejo would have limited a group like the Sierra Club or the NAACP or Planned Parenthood or Right to Life, or the NRA, or any of these groups, from spending as much as $1,000, quote, relative to a candidate for office, right? And this is what passes as reasonable regulation in the circles of people pushing this kind of constitutional amendment. And presumably, in the mind of Hillary Clinton, when she calls for Supreme Court justices who would take similar action without an amendment. So I think this should be very, very troubling to us to think that a national group like the NRA would be limited to spending $1,000 to promote its views in an election relative to a candidate, whatever that happens to mean. Um, we really should, should not underestimate Citizens United. In Citizens United, you had four justices of the Supreme Court, the dissenters, who took the position that Irwin seems to take today, that the government can censor a documentary movie about a political candidate during an election year. That is a very, very radical position. 
And uh, I, I think that Americans, if they were to find that that were actually the case, they would be outraged. My experience has always been that campaign finance reform of that sort is much more popular in the abstract than it is in the concrete. Thank you for that. Erwin, any responses? And also imagine that Hillary Clinton is elected and does get to appoint uh, two or three justices. Would Buckley versus Vallejo be overturned, as um, Brad suggests? And, and more broadly, how might campaign finance law change, say, uh, 15 or 20 years down the line? I sure hope Buckley versus Vallejo will be overruled. Let me try to respond to what Brad says step by step. First, with regard to disclosure laws, what Brad is proposing is a radical change in constitutional law. In Buckley versus Vallejo, the Supreme Court upheld the disclosure provisions with regard to the amendments to the Federal Election Act. In Citizens United, the Supreme Court 8-1 to upheld the disclosure provisions of the McCain-Feingold Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act, even while the court was striking down restrictions with regard to corporate speech. The Supreme Court has repeatedly said that disclosure is essential with regard to campaign finance. It's true. It might discourage some from contributing. It's true that if you believe that people have a right to make private secret contributions, that would be inconsistent with it. But the Supreme Court has said that it's essential in order for the election process to work for us to know who candidates are receiving money from, because it's a key way of seeing who's influencing the candidate, who's the candidate likely to be serving. And so what Brad's suggesting with regard to disclosure would be a dramatic change in constitutional law, and I think increasing secrecy in that way would be quite undesirable. Second, with regard to Citizens United, what Brad overlooks is that just seven years earlier, five justices in the Supreme Court, in McConnell versus Federal Election Commission, upheld these provisions of the Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act. What they did was limit the ability of corporations and unions 30 days before a primary election, 60 days before a general election, to broadcast ads in favor of or against a specific candidate. And this goes back to enforcing laws that are more than a century old that say that corporations and then unions can't directly contribute money to candidates for elective office. And this keeps them from doing so indirectly. And I think that the law was desirable. I think just O'Connor and Stevens got exactly right in McConnell. I do think that Buckley versus Vallejo was wrongly decided. Buckley versus Vallejo was a 1976 Supreme Court case that said that spending money in an election is core political speech and that the government can restrict it only if the government action is necessary to achieve a compelling government interest. I think spending money is a form of conduct that communicates. We've all heard the expression, money talks, but I think the Supreme Court took it much too literally. What Congress was trying to do in the 1934 amendments to the Federal Election Act was limit the amount that people could spend through expenditures, with their contributions to candidates, so as to keep there from being the appearance of corruption, to keep the wealthy from distorting the political process. I think Buckley was wrong in that regard, so I would favor it being overruled. On the other hand, your last question, Jeff, what's likely to happen? I don't think the Supreme Court's going to overrule Buckley. I don't think the Constitution is going to be amended. But if you look at the Supreme Court today, there are four justices who are in the majority in Citizens United, and that, of course, is Chief Justice Roberts, just Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito. And there are four justices who would vote to overrule Citizens United, who would strongly disagree with it. Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, who dissent, 
And Justice Kagan has come on the court since Citizens United. So I think who replaces Justice Scalia, of course, who fills other vacancies in the years to come, is going to determine whether Citizens United is overruled or not. I hope that Citizens United will be overruled and overruled soon. Brad, if Donald Trump is appointed, um, imagine that he gets to appoint uh, two or three justices. Uh, would they um, overturn Buckley in the other way? In other words, removing all uh, restrictions on speech? And how would the law look like in 20 years if we had two or three Trump appointees on the Supreme Court? Well, of course, Trump has also favored campaign finance regulation. At least he's made a number of comments to that effect. On the other hand, uh, he's he's not seen to make it a priority issue here. And when you're talking about selecting judges from a Republican pool of judges, uh, it's fairly hard to get a bunch of judges who disagree with Citizens United. Uh, most Republican uh, uh, lawyers and people who would be candidates for the bench uh, would agree that the decision is right. Uh, the court has not shown, uh, in, as I can tell, a particularly strong interest in overruling Buckley on the question of can you limit contributions. But I think it could with the right people involved. Uh, there have been, uh, at various times, uh, there have always been justices on the court who would have uh, disagreed with that uh, part of the decision. Uh, they've never quite made a majority. Uh, there are probably at least three votes for that now, and, and quite possibly four among the uh, four more conservative justices. So, so that could change. I do want to comment, though. I, I, I think uh, Irwin has fundamentally misrepresented a couple of decisions, in particularly Buckley on disclosure. It is true that Buckley upheld disclosure laws, but it did so only after narrowing their reach, essentially to say the only disclosure you get is disclosure of uh, people who give money specifically to run ads that specifically support or oppose a candidate for election, uh, or if it's a group that exists for the purposes of supporting candidates for election. The court uh, upheld the laws only after cutting out of the law all of the stuff that Irwin now wants to force uh, disclosure on. That is, it, it said you cannot force disclosure by groups that do not have a primary purpose of electing candidates for office unless they are getting contributions from people specifically for the purpose of running ads, advocating the election or defeat of a candidate, and use the money for that purpose. So essentially, Buckley does not support Irwin's position on that. It takes quite the opposite approach. And to say that it's a radical change in the Constitution just strikes me as, as absurd, of course. Uh, Citizens United, for example, does not address uh, anything suggesting that we need more laws. It simply says that the current laws, that was essentially the Buckley and McConnell framework, were lawful. Now there's an effort to push uh, disclosure into much further efforts. And then there are a whole series of Supreme Court decisions suggesting that people have a right to be anonymous. Uh, we've mentioned earlier in this uh, uh, podcast, McIntyre versus Ohio Elections Commission, that related to a woman and her family who were distributing political leaflets uh, outside a school board meeting. Uh, we have cases, a whole series of civil rights cases, NAACP versus Alabama, uh, NAACP versus Button. Uh, there are others, uh, Bates v. Little Rock, that deal with the ability of groups to keep their donors secret. Uh, these are groups that are not engaged in advocating the election or defeat of a candidate, but they are doing things that may shape people's political views and then thus may ultimately shape how they vote. We have Thomas versus Collins that says that union organizers can remain anonymous. We have Cali versus California that says that picketers have a right to remain anonymous and to keep anonymous the sources of their financial support. We have Stratton versus, uh, or Watchtower Bible and Tract Society versus Village of Stratton, holding that 
uh, people who are going door to door do not have to first register with the village and disclose themselves. So the court has long protected privacy. And what it has done in the area of campaign finance, that's actually sort of the exception where the court has allowed this kind of compelled disclosure. But it has cabined it off and very definitely cabined it off in Buckley v. Vallejo. And what we see going on now is an effort to essentially upset uh, that series of rulings. And the question would be, you know, is there a stopping point here at any point in time where, you know, people can say, no, I would like to be private. I would prefer to be private. And the benefits of that kind of privacy are, are, are well known. They're illustrated throughout our history. You know, the Federalist Papers were published anonymously and written anonymously or pseudonymously. Uh, people like Abraham Lincoln, uh, the great uh, Chief Justice John Marshall, uh, General Winfield Scott, uh, all kinds of Americans uh, have published anonymously for a wide variety of reasons. Uh, Common Sense, the great uh, pamphlet of the American Revolution was published anonymously. Uh, it's a long history in the United States, and the court has long protected this kind of behavior. And it's attempted to draw a balance in the political side of things and to say that uh, keeping that balance is some radical departure from the U.S. Constitution just strikes me as, as uh, totally wrongheaded and ignoring an entire series of precedents, as well as badly misstating uh, what Buckley held. Thanks for that, Erwin. Your response, and in the course of it, in the educational spirit, our podcast listeners have asked for a disaggregation of some of the cases. Campaign finance is especially complicated, and I know you can sum up as uh, economically as possible exactly what Buckley versus Vallejo said and its distinction between expenditures and contributions and, and then why you disagree with, with Brad on, on the disclosure issues. Of course. Let me start with the last part of your question, and then I do want to disagree with Brad because I think we disagree in terms of what the cases hold, and we certainly disagree in terms of what the law should be. Buckley versus Vallejo drew a distinction between the government regulating what's called expenditures as opposed to the government regulating contributions. Buckley versus Vallejo said that whereas the government can regulate what's contributed directly to a candidate or committee for a candidate, the government can't stop what a person is going to spend on his or her own. So imagine this year that somebody has a million dollars that he or she wants to spend on behalf of either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Buckley versus Vallejo says the government can limit the amount that the person contributes directly to the candidate or committee for a candidate. Contribution limits are constitutional, but the government can't stop the person from spending the whole million dollars by, say, taking out ads directly in the media. Expenditure limits are unconstitutional. What Citizens United, which we've been talking about, holds is that corporations, like individuals, have the right to unlimited expenditures, that expenditure limits for corporations, like for individuals, are unconstitutional. And this has been the framework for campaign finance law ever since Buckley, which is now 40 years ago. Now as to my disagreement with Brad. Um, first, no Supreme Court case in history has ever held that there's a constitutional right for a candidate to keep secret the contributions that he or she receives. No Supreme Court case in history has ever held that there's a general right of individuals to keep secret the contributions that they give to candidates. Quite the contrary. Buckley versus Vallejo did uphold disclosure provisions, and more importantly, in the context of Citizens United, Eight to one, it upheld the disclosure provisions in the Federal Election Act. And so here, 
Brad and I would disagree. There's only one Supreme Court case that's ever struck down disclosure provisions in the campaign context. There's a case called Socialist Workers Party versus Brown, where the Supreme Court said, since this is a very minor, unpopular party, which had no chance of getting elected anyway, disclosure would chill contributions and the balance tipped differently. But otherwise, the Supreme Court has always emphasized the importance of disclosure. In fact, Justice Kennedy, who wrote the opinion in Citizen United, seems to have a view of, let corporations spend all they want, but have it all be public so that we can then assess who's supporting the candidate and who the candidate is likely to try to influence. So we, Brad and I disagree in terms of the law. Second, Brad cites many cases in terms of the importance of anonymous speech. But all of those cases he recites have nothing to do with political campaigns. Of course people have the right to belong to organizations without that being disclosed. Of course the Supreme Court has held that organizations don't have to disclose their members. But in the context of campaigns, there's truly a compelling interest in our knowing who is giving the money to the candidate and who is therefore likely to have influence with the candidate. And at the normative level, in terms of what the law should be, I think the Supreme Court's gotten exactly right in terms of disclosure. In fact, there's a case that Brad doesn't mention, Doe versus Reed, where the Supreme Court said it was permissible to require that those who signed a ballot initiative be disclosed. The court brushed aside the concerns with regard to chilling speech. So I think that sunlight is the best disinfectant. It's essential that we know who's spending the money to get somebody elected, because that's going to tell us who the candidate is being influenced by and may even be beholden to. Thanks, thanks so I, much for that. Just quote, a, quick, Jeff, a, a, quick, a quick response, and then we're going to move on. To, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I really think this is important because, again, I, I agree with Irwin on what Buckley, that Buckley and the Supreme Court has never held that candidates have a right to keep their contributions private and that donors to candidates should have a right to keep their contributions private. But Buckley very clearly holds that the kind of indirect spending that Irwin wants to force out can be forced out because it's not necessarily public. And I mean, it's worth quoting Buckley on this, right? I mean, here's what Buckley actually says. It says, uh, the requirement that political committees and candidates disclose their expenditures could raise similar vagueness problems, right? The lower courts have construed the words political committee narrowly to fulfill the purposes of the act. They only need to encompass organizations that are under control of a candidate or the major purpose of which is the nomination or election of a candidate. Uh, it goes on and says, when the maker of the expenditure is not within these categories, when it is an individual or a candidate or group other than a political committee, the relationship of the information sought to the purposes of the act are too remote to ensure that the reach of 434E, that's the section at issue in the law, is not impermissibly broad. We construe expenditure for purposes of that section the same way we construe it, and they name another section they talked about earlier, to reach only funds used for communications that expressly advocate the election or defeat of a clearly identified candidate. So giving dues to a trade association, giving dues to a, uh, a nonprofit C4 or C3 uh, think tank were precisely the kinds of things that Buckley protected. That's what Buckley protects. Irwin is quite right that contributions to candidates can be disclosed. Irwin is quite right that uh, uh, donors to, you know, can be disclosed when, they're, when they give directly to candidates. But he is entirely wrong, and it is not what Buckley says when Buckley talks about the, uh, what people do uh, in terms of indirect expenditures. And I, I think this is a real problem when we talk about things in the campaign here. You know, to go a little bit outside of the presidential campaign, we have a lot of candidates right now 
who are making very threatening noises First Amendment. Elizabeth Warren consistently attacks uh, uh, people who might fund think tanks that publish reports she disagrees with. Sheldon Whitehouse, has, uh, senator from Rhode Island, has called for uh, criminal prosecutions of people that he thinks are spending money on politics uh, that he doesn't like. We have a situation where uh, Dick Durbin, in a few years back, tried to call various groups into Congress and embarrass them because of their contributions to nonprofit organizations that did things he didn't like. And this is the sort of thing that I talk about when I say, you know, we have to be concerned not just with the letter of the First Amendment, which should protect the speech and does under Buckley, but also with the spirit of the First Amendment. And we have people, uh, I think, abusing their power of office to try to intimidate speakers and force them out of the marketplace of ideas. And I think that's a, a very, very bad thing. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned by some of the noises that, uh, and the impulses that Donald Trump seems to have for people who criticize him. But I think this is a much broader problem, and uh, it's very problematic. And, and if we're going to address it, we have to start by at least getting the Supreme Court precedents correct. Okay, wonderful. Well, we, um, thank you for that very rich discussion. We're gonna have, we have two uh, final topics and then uh, closing statements. Uh, the first is terrorist speech. In December 2015, Donald Trump suggested that parts of the Internet could be closed up, referring to digital resources that terrorists use online. And Hillary Clinton seems to have somewhat agreed with this approach. Um, in a speech at the Brookings Institution, she said, we are going to have to have more support from our friends in the technology world to deny online space. And she uh, suggested um, on December 19th, allowing law enforcement to penetrate encryption and that saying the government should work with host companies to shut down jihadist websites. Irwin, uh, the First Amendment only allows speech to be banned, uh, thanks to the great Justice Louis Brandeis, when it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. To what degree does that restrict either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump from um, changing the standards for terrorist speech online, and, and what could either candidates do to change that standard? You've correctly stated the law, of course, and most recently in Brandenburg versus Ohio in 1969, the Supreme Court said that speech of the sort we're talking about can be punished only if there's a substantial likelihood of imminent illegal activity and only if the speech is directed at causing imminent illegal activity. That's a very hard standard to meet. Obviously, if speech that urges terrorism meets that standard, then it can be punished. And the Supreme Court in 2010, the Humanitarian Law Project versus Holder, said that speech can be the basis for conviction for material assisting a terrorist organization. But I believe it has to meet the difficult standard of Brandenburg. I think the latter issue that you point to is an enormously difficult one. This involves whether or not the government should be able to have access to all encrypted communication. I think under current law, the government does not. I don't think the court can force Apple or anybody else to write a new program to break encryption. The issue is really for Congress here, and whether Congress should pass a law that requires that there be a key available to law enforcement to break all encryption. I think such a law would be constitutional. I think the hard question is, would it be desirable? It would let the government have access to terrorist communication, but it would also create a back door that repressive countries could use, that bad guys could use to get access. But I think that's a question for Congress, and I wish Congress would take up that question. 
Thanks very much. Brad, do you think Congress should take up the question? And more broadly, how do you think that the candidates could change the standards for terrorist incitement? Well, after our vigorous exchange on Citizens United, I want to say once again, here again, I totally agree with uh, Irwin's analysis of the law and then the relevant precedents and where we are. I think um, Congress... uh, you know, we have to see what what the Congress is and what the what the uh, next president is uh, before we know what's going to to happen there. I think that there is going to continue to be a lot of pressure on Congress to pass laws that give law enforcement uh, greater reach to get at these encrypted communications. Um, there is a lot of pushback from civil libertarians as well. But I think in the end, it's the kind of issue where, to be honest, the American people go, this is really complex. I don't understand it. I want to be safe. And unfortunately, I, I think that's the kind of thing that is actually, uh, uh, that's how we sort of lose our liberties over time. So I find it a, a discouraging framework. Uh, but actually, I would agree with Erwin that it's probably constitutional. And the question is more whether it's desirable. Uh, and unfortunately, I'm not sure we're going to make that decision in the most uh, rational, thoughtful manner. Thanks very much for that. Uh, last question before closing statements has to do with religious liberty. Um, Donald Trump has said if he's elected president, one of the first thing he's going to do is to knock out the Johnson Amendment, which is an old prohibition on tax-exempt organizations like churches being able to endorse political candidates. Uh, Hillary Clinton has commented on an Indiana law uh, restricting religious liberty, calling it uh, sad. Um, Irwin, if Hillary Clinton were able to appoint two or three Supreme Court justices, how would the state of church-state separation change? Let me answer that question, then also address what you said with regard to the Johnson Amendment. I think the current court is split four to four with regard to religion issues since Justice Scalia passed away. I think there are four justices who very much believe in a wall that separates church and state, and four justices who reject the idea of a wall that separates church and state and believe we should accommodate religion into government and allow government support of religion. And so who fills Justice Scalia's seat is going to be very important with regard to prayer at government events, the ability of the government to give aid to parochial schools, religious symbols on government property. The last Supreme Court case about the Establishment Clause, Town of Greece versus Galloway a couple of years ago, involved whether a town board could invite Christian clergy to deliver prayers before its meeting, explicitly Christian prayers for many years. And the Court 5-4 to four upheld that, both Justice Scalia and the majority. Likewise, when it comes to interpreting the key federal statute with regard to religious freedom, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the Supreme Court, in its most recent decision, Burwell versus Hobby Lobby was split five to four, with the Supreme Court wanting to provide more protections for the religious freedom of family-held businesses, but over the vehement dissent of four justices. So it's not surprising to me that the Supreme Court splits on religion issues like society does along liberal conservative lines. And so I think here, who replaces Justice Scalia is going to be quite important. Um, you alluded to the Johnson Amendment, because mentioned often in Trump's speeches, it was much discussed at the Republican Convention. The Johnson Amendment was enacted in 1954. It's named after former President Lyndon Johnson, who introduced the amendment while serving as Democratic Minority Leader. It modifies Section 5013C of the Federal Tax Code, and it says that charitable, religious, 
scientific, literary, and educational organizations that qualify for a tax exemption may not participate in or intervene in any political campaign on behalf of an opposition of any candidate for public office. The Johnson Amendment is therefore 60 years old. It's worked very well. And the reason for it is we shouldn't allow the government to be subsidizing political speech. That if a religious organization or a charitable organization or a scientific organization is claiming to be tax-exempt, it shouldn't be using that benefit to engage in partisan political politics. So the Johnson Amendment shouldn't be repealed. In reality, the IRS hardly ever enforces it. Thanks for that. Brad, your thoughts on the Johnson Amendment, on how the Supreme Court religious freedom jurisprudence could change with a Trump appointee, and maybe a beat on this Indiana law, which Hillary Clinton called sad. Uh, it's a version of the federal, federal uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which Bill Clinton signed, and uh, supporters say that it protects religious freedom. Opponents say it discriminates against gay people. What's your take on Clinton's opposition to it? Sure. Well, if, if we take those one at a time, I, I think the, uh, the Johnson Amendment is something that this really irritates a lot of uh, conservative Christian churches, uh, and they're, they're, it, it really seems to bother them. But I agree with Erwin that in practice, it's virtually never enforced. Uh, there are almost no episodes of the IRS attempting to remove tax-exempt status from a church on the basis of some kind of you know, sermon from the pulpit, uh, something like that. And uh, I think that's a good thing. It does make me wonder whether the Johnson Amendment has outlived its usefulness. You know, do we want it on the books if it's never enforced? My own guess is that there's a, a sort of societal check on that, right? People don't want their, to go to church and be lectured on politics, and they don't like that. Maybe, if nothing else, it could be refined to make clear that churches can't use their resources to, you know, put up billboards and stuff like that, right? But, but certainly that, that remarks from the pulpit are, you know, exempt from, from any concern about the, uh, about the Johnson Amendment. Uh, it should be remembered that Johnson pushed that amendment precisely because he felt that certain religious broadcasters were very negative toward him. Again, this reminds us of what is always the problem with giving government the ability to limit speech, is immediately lawmakers try to limit speech that is critical of them or, or that they're not happy with. Um, I, I think, you know, on, on religious freedom generally, uh, a Trump appointee would be somewhat the same as on the campaign finance issue. That is, you're drawing from a certain pool of, of thinkers, lawyers, uh, scholars, and most of them would uh, take a view that would be more protective of uh, religious liberty uh, than you would get from uh, President Clinton. So I think if uh, Trump's elected, the, the successor to Scalia and possibly others would be more protective there, and we would see the law uh, drift a small amount in that direction, although I don't think we're going to see any major change in, in the you know core elements of the court's church and state doctrine. And uh, finally, that leads us to the Indiana law. And I guess I would say this, rather than address it from a constitutional standpoint per se, I think that I think that the many of the supporters of religious freedom have made a mistake in framing the issue as one of religious liberty that that religious liberty should get more protection, rather than saying generally all of us should get a lot of protection. For our freedom, uh, you should have a lot of right to run your business how you want, associate with the people that you want, uh, and that we should interfere with that only when it's really an egregious problem, uh, something that is that is you know uh, clearly problematic. As was the case with civil rights 
uh, in the South and in much of the rest of the country in the 1950s, 60s, and so on. And we should be very careful about, you know, just sort of pushing uh, uh, government onto people when and commands onto people when it's not really necessary. As you point out, the Religious Freedom Act in Indiana is largely modeled after the federal act. It had never really been a problem. Uh, in fact, the, when the federal law was uh, passed, it was one of the true real bipartisan acts, very little opposition passed by Republican Congress and signed by President Clinton. And I think that, you know, some of these things, you know, we just we just need to back off a little bit. I heard it said once that, uh, you know, the culture war is, war is over and the winners are going around shooting survivors. And it strikes me that, that was that's a little bit of what's going on in Indiana, the state of Indiana. Just wanted to say uh, to people who've lost the culture war, look, you still have your private lives. And, and a little breathing space there probably wouldn't be a bad thing. Thank you very much for that. All right. It is time, gentlemen, for closing statements in this really rich and varied debate, uh, which has been uh, absolutely fascinating. Um, Erwin, can you tell us what the stakes for the First Amendment are in the 2016 election and why should voters care about uh, their vote based on the future of the First Amendment? I think the stakes are very high. Let me start by thanking you, Jeff, for having me and Brad part of this wonderful debate. Um, I think we've touched on many things that aren't at issue in this campaign. Libel law, for example, isn't at issue in this campaign. I don't think that what's going to change is with regard to how the Supreme Court treats speech with regard to terrorism. But we have touched on areas where the Supreme Court right now is split four to four, and who will place the Supreme Court justice is going to be crucial. Now, we're focusing on Justice Scalia's replacement, but it's also important to keep in mind that since 1960, 78 years old is the average age which the Supreme Court justice left the bench. And we have three justices right now, 78 or older. So whoever's president, especially if he or she serves for two terms, is likely to have three, maybe even four seats to fill on the Supreme Court. And therefore, this election is going to be crucial for the kind of questions we've talked about. And here I'd focus on the disagreements that Brad and I have had. He and I disagree very sharply with regard to whether Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission is desirable. I don't believe that corporations are people. I don't believe corporations should have the same right as individuals. I think the Supreme Court got it right in 2003 when it held that Congress could restrict the spending of corporations and unions with regard to election campaigns. And I think if Hillary Clinton wins, Citizens United will certainly be limited, maybe even overruled, and that's a good thing. In the latter part of our discussion, Brad and I disagree with regard to the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. I think who wins this election is going to be crucial in terms of whether we have a wall that separates church and state. And in Brad's last comment, we disagree about free exercise of religion. I don't believe that people ever in the name of free exercise of religion should be able to inflict an injury on others. People in practicing their religion shouldn't be able to deny women employees access to contraceptives. People in practicing their religion shouldn't be able to discriminate based on race or on the basis of sexual orientation. Here, too, the current court, I think, is split four to four. So the stakes for this election, in terms of the First Amendment, in terms of every constitutional issue, are enormous. Thank you so much for that, Erwin. Brad, last word to you. What are the First Amendment stakes in the 2016 election, and why should listeners care? Well, uh, you know, Erwin's largely right, and I would point out a second element to that, which is, of course— the lower courts, right? The, the Supreme Court's likely to hear about 70, maybe 60, 80 cases this year. The vast majority of cases 
and in the lower courts, in the courts of appeal. And, of course, obviously the president makes those appointments as well. And after uh, two years of, or two terms of President Obama, uh, those courts are, are, are moving, you know, toward the left. And so, uh, you know, two more terms, uh, or one or two more terms of Hillary Clinton, that's going to be a very dominant position on, on the lower courts. Uh, and that takes actually often more time to alter that than uh, does the makeup of the Supreme Court. So it is it is a big issue there. Um, beyond that, I just want to comment on, on, on one thing, and, and this goes to, you know, Irwin makes the point, he says, well, people shouldn't be able to deny others contra- contraceptives, access to contraceptives. I'm not aware of anybody denying anybody access to contraceptives. It seems to me the issue is that some people want to force other people to pay for and provide contraceptives to people, as opposed to just let those people who want the contraceptives find some way to get them. And I think that's exactly you know where we need to start thinking about what kind of a society we really want to be in. It is, and it is a really big choice. You know, Irwin kind of leans on the favor of coercion. He thinks this is an important value, so people should be coerced to support it. And I lean on the, on, on the basis of sort of let people live their lives, let people figure out things on their own, uh, and, and, and let people do what they, they choose to do. If they're upset by the idea of uh, they don't want to pay for contraception, then why should they have to pay for contraception for someone else? Let them design a health plan uh, and offer it to their employees on those terms and let people contract for it. So uh, that that theme will ring out throughout a lot of the court's decisions, not only in the First Amendment, uh, but in other areas. And so it is certainly one of the dominant issues of the 2016 election. And we will see uh, uh, changes in the law in not only the First Amendment, but a whole host of areas based on who is the winner in November. Thank you so much, Erwin Chemerinsky and Brad Smith, for a truly wide-ranging, substantive, and fascinating discussion about the candidates and the First Amendment. It has been a veritable constitutional feast, and we are so grateful to both of you for having educated our great listeners about the constitutional stakes in this election. Erwin, Brad, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Erwin. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at ConstitutionCenter.org or me, Jay Rosen, at ConstitutionCenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast, live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast, or even better, just become a member so you can get our emails and find out about all of our phenomenal programs, podcasts, videos, and debates. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.